right, so welcome back, everyone. We're making our journey through talking about spiritual formation. There's a lot of stuff to talk about, so I just kind of chose some um, things that I thought stuck out. Um, we started just by talking about spiritual formation in general and then talked about the work of the Spirit. And we moved on to uh, spiritual disciplines last week, and we talked through one of them, prayer, uh, specifically. So just to rehash, I like to say things differently sometimes so it just strikes you, oh, that's what's going on, strikes you differently, right? So spiritual disciplines are means of becoming who you are by experiencing humanness properly and intentionally. Um, we're taught, really since even a young age, to experience humanness really wrong, right? Be your own God. Self-autonomy, moral autonomy, you know. It's really amazing when you think about it. And Christianity teaches us the first or last, the last or first, and be able to experience what it means to be a dependent being, knowing that you're held together every moment by God. It takes a rewiring, doesn't it? And so we journey it into prayer, and that's the discipline of talking to God for the purposes of becoming more like him. And this is Trinitarian. Honest, all these spiritual disciplines are Trinitarian. It's the God working through us and in us to mold us unto him. I just said it, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, so that's what's going on as we move forward. It's not always as clear as other times, but I just like to say it because, you know, this isn't about us ultimately and that's a great reminder so let's begin and i want to begin by introducing a helpful video i often will show videos because eh, i don't i wouldn't say it exactly that way although that's really helpful um, and here's a good example of that i'm going to actually for the first time over this next spiritual discipline fasting i'm going to have a couple that talk about fasting in a complementary way, but there's some unique perspectives that um, you may find helpful. Fasting is discussed in a lot of different ways, and everyone says it a bit differently. So listen in. This is about seven minutes. It's a bit longer than I like, but it's good. suffering in hopes that God will be impressed by my self-inflicted suffering. That's not what fasting is about. The 
There we go. That's a great, um, there we go, introduction to some of the issues and a reminder of what fasting is all about. This is closely related to prayer, and that comes out really clearly, I think, um, um, by uh, Dr. Whitney. Uh, so uh, just a few uh, points before moving on. Uh, the importance of food, and it was something that, you know, I'm not sure if I've ever really recognized until I just saw it myself, but the importance of food within the Bible, even. The Bible starts with a story of the Garden of Eden, we're created outside of it and then placed in it. It's all strategic, there's always meaning. And then it ends with the Tree of Life, 
um, and rivers running through the, the restored new heavens and new earth, right, with the tree of life in, in the midst of it. So we have a tree of life in the beginning, a tree of life at the end. Adam and Eve are warned not to do one thing in the beginning of the story instead of eating the fruit of the tree of life. Uh, the text implies instead of eating that fruit, they eat the, from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge good and evil. They want to be like God, and then God throws them out of the garden, and now you don't have access to the tree of life. The symbolism of eating, that eating so central to what it means to be human, um, that even immortality is construed as something that we get upon eating something. Think about it, right? right? The tree, the fruit of life. And then it ends that way. We're going to all be eating from this tree. Yes, yes, there's a lot of symbolism there. Maybe it's a real tree, maybe not. That's a great question. That's certainly not the point. But the author there wants us to recognize that eating our belly is essential to what it means to be human. It's not any uh, mistake that Jesus comes along halfway through this story and tells his audience that's very confused, and he tells them, eat me. Eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you will live forever. The metaphor of eating is central to what it means to be human. Um, and, and so fasting is one way of recognizing that, recognizing even an idol that we can make out of food. And it's cutting at the heart of human experience. We all know a lot of our favorite memories are centered around food. So why fast? Why is this necessary? The first thing to recognize is that fasting is not something that's just self sort of, uh, you know, like Dr. Whitney was mentioning, um, just a way of punishing yourself or feeling awful. It's not about that. And, it, and it's always balanced with celebration. These two go hand in hand. We're going to talk about celebration later. It's a spiritual discipline, right? The Old Testament, the way their culture's set up is uh, there's celebrations all throughout the year to break up the monotony of life. That's a discipline. Well, that sounds like a more fun one. Well, fasting before celebration, Right? So make sure to recognize that this isn't an end in itself at all, and, it, and that food is properly good. The whole point of fasting is to recognize that food is awesome. And it's so awesome, sometimes we need to remind ourselves um, that we replace God with it. Not that we ever think about food during Frank's sermons. Never. Never. So the necessity, this is all over the place. I didn't want to list everything, but you're probably familiar of just all the times. And the text usually doesn't mention anything. You just have some historical narrative, and Moses is going out in the middle of nowhere. Wilderness, fasting are often correlated, as prayer and fast are correlated, and fasting are correlated. Uh, Israel wandering through the wilderness for 40 years, fasting. And what are they doing the whole, com the whole time? They're complaining. Uh, and then Jesus, of course, fulfilling that in his 40-day wilderness stint. Fasting. That sounds like fun, right? WWJD. Stop eating for a while. No, I'm just joking. Right? But it, it, it's, it's there. It doesn't explain why. But the why is that fasting is crucial to recognize who we are in Yahweh, in Christ. Um, and that's what we're going to be explaining. Here's Jesus talking about uh, some 
guidelines, I suppose you could say, to fasting. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to men that you're fasting, but only to your father who is unseen. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. This is going to be another theme, a theme of self-denial, and part of self-denial being secrecy. Um, And all these spiritual disciplines, um, typically it's done pretty secretly. It's not something you talk about, oh, look at me, look at me. It undoes everything, and I think Jesus is... uh, pointing at that. So, ah, this leads us to, this is not a video, it's a audio recording, I want to say, and it's a complementing narrative. This is going to complement what we just learned about, but Piper's going to pick up some of the contemplative um, aspects to fasting that evangelicals often miss, and since I'm going to talk about that, I just want to show you I'm not crazy. I 
Oh, sorry. Do you guys want to hear that part? God, which you can download for free online. There we go. Um, so there you have it. Um, Piper explains well what historically Christianity has taught about fasting, that it took me a long time to recover and realize. I was taught, which is very true, you, you fast so then you're reminded to pray a lot. And that's true. But you also fast to become who you really are, to expose who you are, to uh, embrace the kind of creature you are. And it changes you. It just does. If your belly is always full, you're going to be a certain kind of person. Um, and our culture teaches us to live that way. And we're trying to, as Christians, we want to rewire. We want to kind of redo liturgy. We have a certain liturgy. It's the life that our culture tells us to live. But the life that we're supposed to live is at least partially um, communicated through fasting that there's broken, brokenness and then there's restoration. There's longing and then there's fulfillment. Fasting's half of that. And it's a reminder of what the life to come is and our role in that, not as lords, but as servants. So how is it a spiritual discipline? Uh, we, we probably can, you can, in your head, you can even start answering this as, as you've been listening along uh, to a couple of the videos. But uh, one, it's a spiritual discipline because it's forcing us, it's forcing us to intentionally deny and control our physical desires in order to increase our God-centered sensitivity and strength. It's taking away one to expose our lack in the other, right? That's obviously challenging. This is a discipline. You're not going to get it right the first time. You're probably going to constantly do it for the wrong reasons. But don't give up. Keep doing it. The first time you ride a bike, you're going to mess up. You're going to fail, but you got to keep doing it. Um, and I think that's what's scary about the spiritual disciplines is going into it, you're like, I'm sinning doing this right now. I'm so self-centered right now. Yeah. Keep, do keep going. Keep going. And then, it, oh, oh, now I'm getting it. Now I can pop a wheelie. Woo! <laughs> that's what's very cool. So this helps break certain patterns of behavior. When I feel hunger, I immediately go to making my hunger go away or complaining, or hangry, or whatever, right? We all know what happens when we get hungry, and it will expose this. And when you just stop and think, what is hunger really saying about me? You're getting it. Oh, yeah, I'm not God. I'm not Ase. I'm not life. I'm living only because he sustains me. 
It strengthens even our spiritual sensitivity. That's something that you can see in the videos. I know it kind of sounds like new age saying it this way, but when Christians say spiritual, we mean God-centered. We mean reality. We mean our souls have a longing that our bodies sometimes hide. I hate dichotomizing the two like that, but it preaches, right? Um, It helps deny certain uh, pleasures in preference to God. And it exposes, as it does this, like we've already mentioned, it exposes these idols in our hearts. We love creating idols, and I think food is one of our main ones. Um, Our life is set. We have a liturgy of food. Just think about it. An order. Your whole day is set up around meals. And fasting is a way to break it up, change it up, and realize, oh, wait, God's my food. Eat me, and you will live forever. Like, Jesus isn't, like, joking around there. He's for real. What do we do when we take communion? Jesus is presently, he's, he's spiritually there. And communion, the bread and the wine, I mean, he's, this is my body. So at, our church believes his spiritual presence is there. There's a sense in which we're eating Christ, the tree, the fruit of life. As a reminder That in him, we're immortal. In him, we're incorruptible. See how that works? And food exposes that we have a false god. Uh, It may break hold of something that has hold on you to sharpen your perception of the world around us. We've basically mentioned that. So this is a way of perceiving who we really are and what life is really about. That's sort of where the rubber hits the road of fasting um, it theologically explains who we are in a, in, in a way that practically uh, relates to our life order, our order of life every day. So how do you incorporate this? Just want to make this a little more relatable. I think the first video is very helpful here that, you know, typically when we think of fasting, we go all radical. Uh, do the vegetable fast, the Daniel fast. Just eat vegetables and nothing else, and you're going to long for, you know, real food. No offense, but real food, you're going to constantly be hungry. I would rather just abstain from food than try the vegetable fast. But if, again, we all, we all have a way that, that there's different ways of going about this. Um, make this a, regularly, a regular weekly event if you can. Choose a day, skip lunch or whatever. Or an as-needed basis, maybe add a few uh, more days in there as you feel like you need it. But choose a day, just skip a meal, start there. Or you can do the fast where you just eat at night, not during the day. All right, so the sun goes down and you eat. Celebration mode. During the day, longing for Jesus mode. As a reminder of who we are. It's kind of fun, I, I love it. I love thinking that way. Partial fast, like we mentioned, um, abstaining from certain types of food like the Daniel fast. That's caught on, so I keep mentioning that. My friend just did that. Uh, now we can have lunch together again because he's done with the Daniel fast. Or a more complete fast in the sense of just not eating for a day. Um, be careful. Like if you're not, you know, a monk would tell you this. John Calvin would tell you this. Any Christian would tell you this. Don't just dive into something all stupid. You can hurt yourself. Uh, Larger fast, yeah, well, I just said that. So, But notice that this is linked to all the other spiritual disciplines, most intensely prayer, 
Fasting is a way to be reminded that we are praying creatures, that we're always talking to God, whether we know it or not, right? We're sustained by him, and it's a reminder, oh, this constant hunger, right? If you want to do a really quick fast to know how much you need God, just stop breathing. Fasting from air. Well, Christians don't usually recommend that because it, you know, it's, you kind of have to give up pretty quickly, <laughs> Um, but this is a reminder that we are praying creatures, and it's also a reminder that we need solitude. Fasting and solitude are closely related, like I mentioned. And I hear this a lot, and I, I usually get questions from my students. Um, and it kind of, I think, I mean, I wouldn't say this to them because it's sort of, actually, I would say it uh, to them, but it, it's pretty blunt. But I often get, well, what about fasting from other things than food? exposing an idol right there. But what about technology? I'm like, yeah, you can fast from technology, but notice that's not fasting anymore. That's just solitude. And that's good. That's healthy. But we need food more. And so there's something about fasting that's going to do something different for you than solitude will. So feel free to fast from other things, but note that it's probably another spiritual discipline at this point. Fasting's correlated with food because it's at the heart of who we are, our dependence, etc. Notice all the metaphors for um, God, for redemption, for the good life in the Bible. I'm the living water. <laughs> you know, the lady at the well. Give me some of that water, right? I'm the bread of life, right? Eat me. Food gets at the heart of it. I mean, just look at where it begins and where it ends. It's really provocative when you think about thought-provoking, right? Um, Jesus is our fruit. Oh, wow, quote me on that one. That preaches. Jesus is a fruit. Oh, come on, guys. Wake up. Wake up. Right, there we go. There we go. How does fasting actually change us? Now, remember, I, I, I went back to a famous line from John Calvin that is a reflection of just Thomas Aquinas, Augustine, and others before him, that our knowledge of God and knowledge of self are very closely related. So you, the more you know about God, the more you know about yourself, and vice versa. It's not like you start with one or the other. It's integrated. And fasting is uh, tapping into this. Um, think about how much just fast uh, this coming week, you know, just take Thursday, don't eat lunch and dinner or just lunch or whatever, skip breakfast, I don't know, and think about what you learned throughout that day, All right? Like Piper was mentioning, it's going to intensify idols, not just food as an idol. Um, when you get frustrated because you're hungry, certain things are going to come out and you're like, holy cow, I'm a worshiper of idols. Listen, what are you going to learn about yourself? You're going to learn all kinds of things. And especially you're going to learn your neediness and dependence, your dependence on the Lord, that you ought to feel that dependence. I mean, we can intellectually say it like, I'm a dependent creature, but we live our lives as if we're not. Fasting will help correct that. We're contingent. That, keep using that word. It just means not necessary. We're not necessary. God's the necessary being. Uh, we exist because he says, right? And we keep on breathing and eating, and so we keep existing. Now, there's some examples of people who do this in interesting ways that you can look up on your own if you wish. The desert fathers and mothers are interesting, to say the least. 
They're a bunch of hermits, uh, well, hermits that lived together. It's, they created their own community. Uh, they thought Ro the Roman Empire was taking out the spirituality from Christianity, and so they retreated into the desert around Alexandria, Egypt, for a while. And they would have these seasons and uh, cycles of fasting, most notably Lent. You know, you might be familiar with Lent, where you're anticipating the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection, that's your resurrection. And so in the meantime, we're fasting in anticipation of that. They would, they would do this. Uh, Anthony the Great, uh, most famously among those really interesting people. Uh, more humorously, but still interestingly, actually I mentioned these uh, really quickly last week, the Polliner monks, um, who created their own beer, uh, to drink that would sustain them during, a, what was it, how long of a fast? 30-day fast or so. Or was it a 40-day? I think it was just Lent. Um, so they would just drink this very malty, uh, apparently delicious. You can find it, by the way. It's uh, at Salvador, that's right. right? It's out there. Um, but this is an old beer that's created, just, just drink that, and you think, like, this is all dirty. No, I mean, there's actually a CNN reporter that tried out this fast. Not a Christian, I don't think. They're just, they were interested in these monks. And by the end of it, this reporter said, I experienced a sort of mental and spiritual acuity I've never before had. Just saw everything differently. Shouldn't really be surprised when you fast. I mean, God made us in a certain way. And fasting is fulfilling who we are. And I'm not saying you all have to go home and do, like, don't, don't, don't do this necessarily, especially if you think it's wrong, but it's just an example of how odd Christians are. There's unique ways to do this. Thank you, Polliner Monks. The Holy Father beer, rough translation. Or Jonathan Edwards, who was aware of these monks, by the way, and argued for the centrality of fasting and worship. It's funny because you don't hear him talk about it that much. He just does it. And their community would do it. In fact, uh, back then, you know, this is before separation of church and state in the same way that you guys are familiar with. And they would just have like city fast. There's certain days where we just all fast. It's just part of the culture, right? And this is something that was very personal and important to Jonathan Edwards. I mentioned the book, if you want to know more about this, by Formed for the Glory of God, very well done book. Uh, readable and insightful, just looking at Jonathan Edwards, and you kind of look at him, and you're like, why don't we think like this today? Like, why have we lost all this good stuff? Not all of it. I'm exaggerating. Uh, so just a couple examples there. Good old Jonathan Edwards. This brings us to the next I want to talk about. So that's fasting. Long story short, experience who you really are. All these spiritual disciplines are become what you are. And these disciplines are a way of rewiring you. All of them come back to that. And here's another one that I think is maybe even, if it's possible, tougher in our culture. Uh, at, at the heart of American consumerism is food, um, but also individualism and pride and this idea that being at the top of the hierarchy is better than at the bottom, which is the opposite of what Jesus taught, who happened to be God. Um, so submission and self-denial, these go together, but they're unique ideas. I just didn't want to separate everything out, and so there's a close enough relationship. I thought I'd cover these together. 
So what's going on here? Uh, submission and self-denial. You can kind of hear it in the word. We're all submitters in Christ, of course, and we all ought to deny yourself in some sense. Pick up your cross. Follow me. Uh, well, yeah, there you go. Um, so here's Jesus talking. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel will save it. He says this in a couple of different ways, but the theme of picking up our cross, that is self-denial, um, and even remaining silent through it, Jesus, who could just stop it if he wanted, that's a pretty consistent theme throughout the New Testament. It's not an easy one. Uh, this is probably tougher than saying no to food. Probably. Depends on who you, we're all a little different. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. I mean, this is just, it's assumed that as Christians, we submit to one another. And what this looks like can vary, of course. I mean, we had a whole, like, we just talked about Ephesians. We just had a whole preaching series, and that's one of the, well, there you go, Ephesians 5. And it's a common theme. Consider others better than yourself as part of this. But now we're going to make it a discipline. We're going to be intentional about this. And that's uh, what's so hard. Here's Martin Luther, always the paradoxal thinker. A lot of people, I just choose at random. Martin Luther just comes up a lot because he's so quotable, right? A Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none in Christ. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all in Christ, Right? We're partakers of the divine nature, and what it means to be God is to be the humiliated one. <laughs> the first will be last, the last will be first, right? So this is tough. This is very tough. How is this a spiritual discipline? It's probably a bit obvious, making this a discipline. So let's start with submission. Submission is a discipline because it is something that runs counter to my normal human tendencies in Adam, right? And with and runs with my tendencies in Christ. Adam and Eve's problem was they wanted to be God. That simple. Moral autonomy is implied by the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They wanted to know everything. They wanted to make their own choices. And that's us. And submission is the exact opposite. It's denying yourself. Um, and this is a repetition, I'm talking about self-denial here. It's the repetitious action of placing another person's needs or well-being above my own. Specifically, God. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. I know this can be read in a lot of different ways. Christians have read it sometimes more radically. And sometimes they haven't really taken it seriously at all. Um, so here we are. Or submission here, it's the deliberate act of placing myself under the authority of another as an act of obedience and worship. As a Christian, we do this every day. I mean, Frank, uh, Cody, they're our elders. We're submitters to them in some sense. That's how the church works. The Bible's very clear about this, right? We're all submitters to God. I submit to our government, right? As long as they're not telling me to do something sinful, how this works. We all do this. Um, but it's the difficulty 
of living this out daily and intentionally that we're going to be talking about. How might we incorporate this submission and self-denial as a discipline? There's a lot of things to say here. And um, it's going to, yeah, I know. I, I think the first time I learned about this one, the whole time I'm just like, but, but no, 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 that's dangerous. No, no, no. And I, I just encourage you just to think about this. And um, I'm not telling you you have to go home and do this one, but uh, just in general, this is difficult stuff. Um, here's an easy one. It's one that you just live daily. And don't tell people you do it. Just do it. Be the humiliating, the condescending, well, it, comes off in the wrong way in our culture, but the one who condescends for others. Just have, uh, make the decision to place your well-being last and others first every fill-in-the-blank day, or maybe every day. I mean, that's pretty, it's every time a need comes up, why well, can't? No, say you can. Die to yourself for a day. It's hard. You're going to hear God speaking through it. You're going to hear your sin louder but you're going to hear God speaking through it. That's an easy way to do this, self-denial, submission to the gospel, which is way more radical than we all want to admit, at least more radical than I want to admit. This might entail regular meetings with a person who God placed over you for the purposes of your care and growth. Um, a discipler, uh, that's kind of getting at the next point here. A discipler, a mentor, Classically, what Christians would call a spiritual director, spiritual direction. Um, any of these sort of things can work. And you probably want to tell that person, you know, I'm going to just make this a discipline for the next 30 days. By the way, like all disciplines, this will become habitual, but you don't want to fast forever. You don't want to, you know, you, you, you can't just always place yourself last functionally. You're going to eventually die because you forgot to eat. So you, you, there's, there's always sort of a range of time on these. Um, so, you know, mentorship, discipling, that sometimes strikes the wrong chord in our culture. I don't know you guys' experiences with mentorship or discipling. It can be done well. Uh, it can be done poorly, like you guys know. Um, but it tends to create a sort of mold and you want to be like your discipler, right? There's a disciple, uh, dis disciple what am I saying? A, a mentee, a mentor, and you want to be like the mentor. Spiritual direction is a bit more uh, a person who's trained to ask the right questions that will help you see how God is speaking into your life right now. There's some differences there. You might not be familiar with it. Evangelicals have, for the most part, forgotten this. Um, and favored discipleship. Um, and I don't know about you, but I've had some wonky experiences with discipleship. I'm like, I don't really want to be like this. But see, spiritual direction is, how can you hear God now? You're a unique person who has some oddities, who maybe can hear God in ways I can't. Why? Why don't you hear God? Why, why do you hear God that way? Do you tell God what it feels like to listen to him? David does it all time. Do you do that? No. Why? Are you telling all this because you think it's the right answer or because you really think it? And the spiritual director asks these sorts of questions to expose um, what God's doing. And it's difficult, but this is one way to do that. We can talk about spiritual direction at another time. It's really a whole topic in itself. But yeah, 
Submit to your mentor. Submit to Frank. Listen. When they tell you something that cuts to the core of who you are, but you realize it lines up with the Bible, just do it. Feel the burn, right? It might involve the deliberate pouring out of myself as a living sacrifice, so looking at the other end of things here, for the cultivating and nurturing of those God has placed within my care. Die to yourself. Go above and beyond for a certain amount of days, pouring yourself up, offering yourself as a living sacrifice, letting yourself being reminded of your dependency, that God does with the, this with you more. Right? That even though you take advantage, he does it anyway. So when people take advantage of you, right, just let it go. Forgive. It's tough. This is when you hear God most. So important safeguards. I mean, this is pretty obvious. There's certain temperaments. Um, oh, we don't need to. I don't have any points under this. There's certain you know, yeah, there's people, if you have a sort of codependency problem, you know, I always tell my students, if this isn't for you, it's fine, fast, right? And I realize how dangerous this can become. You know, people are evil. You know that this can lead in bad directions. So this is done with somebody who knows what they're doing. This is somebody that, that you should tell, maybe Frank, an elder, somebody who's a leader, and say, you know, I just want to learn how to submit well to God. And I, you do that tangibly through su submitting to a person. Tell them that. Don't just choose any random person and do everything they say. That's not what this is about. That would be foolish. No one is arguing that. This is cutting to the core, though, of who we are. Related spiritual discipline here, and this is going to be something, uh, there will be a short clip from Richard Baxter uh, next. But secrecy, it's something I mentioned briefly. It comes out in the Bible uh, more commonly than you might like. Why is Jesus saying it this way? Like It's like he wants this to all be secretive. Why? What's going on? I mean, these are questions we should ask. But secrecy is not making our good deeds or qualities known to let God or others receive attention and to find our sufficiency in God alone. Die to yourself, right? Do uh, serve people continually and don't make a point to mention it. Just do it and drop it and listen to God as you're doing this. Uh, this, is really, this is really something that I have found helpful in my life. Um, just to counteract sort of the way I was sort of thinking when I was a child, when I was growing up in the faith. And I always, you know, I was taught, like, ask people about their quiet times all the time. Talk about your quiet times. And, and there's something about just doing things quietly. Reading your Bible, not making a point to make a scene of it. Praying, but not making a scene of it. We pray before we eat in this, like, dramatic way. You know what I mean? Like, we all sit down to eat food. We bow our heads and we pray for food. But we don't, like, before going into our job, we don't, like, bow down before like entering into the building. Lord, bless this job and sustain me. But we do it with food. And so just consider for a second what it looks like to pray without ceasing. I'm not saying don't pray before you. But I'm saying pray, pray before you do everything in secrecy. Oh, this is a this is an audio re reading. I find this really well done. This is a sermon 
from a Puritan named Richard Baxter that explains self-denial really well in a um, pretty intense way um, and what it means and what it doesn't mean. It's really well organized. I apologize. The voice is a bit monotone, but I didn't want to just read it. I figured you'd be tired of my voice by about this point. So I figured, hey, here's a good way to break it up. Richard Baxter, y'all. He's a Puritan pastor and writer. He wrote some interesting books. Self-Denial by Richard Baxter. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, verse 23. You hear ministers tell you of the odiousness, danger, and sad effects of sin. But of all the sins that you ever heard of, there is scarcely anyone more odious and dangerous than selfishness. And yet most are never troubled at it, nor sensible of its malignity. My principal request, therefore, to you is that as ever you would prove Christians indeed and be saved from sin and the damnation which follows it, take heed of this deadly sin of selfishness and be sure you are possessed with true self-denial. And if you have, see that you use and live upon it. And for your help herein, I shall tell you how your self-denial must be tried. I shall only tell you in a few words how the least measure of true self-denial may be known. Wherever the interest of carnal self is stronger and more predominantly habitual than the interest of God, Christ, or everlasting life, there is no true self-denial or saving grace. But where God's interest is strongest, there self-denial is sincere. If you further ask me how this may be known, briefly thus. First, what is it that you live for? What is that good which your mind is principally set to obtain? And what is that end which you principally design and endeavor to obtain, and which you set your heart on and lay out your hopes upon? Is it the pleasing and glorifying of God and the everlasting fruition of Him? Or is it the pleasing of your fleshly mind in the fruition of any inferior thing? Know this, and you may know whether self or God has the greatest interest in you. For that is your God, which you love most, and please best, and would do most for. Second, That's a good place to stop. It's way more monotone than I remembered. And I'm like, okay, it's too late for that. But... The basic message of, and you can look this up on YouTube if you want on your own time, Richard Baxter, Self-Denial. It's a classic text. I probably should have just read it aloud, the relevant passages. But the basic message is, are you loving yourself or are you loving God? Self-denial is breaking, trying to break our habit that we have, this fallen sort of nature, this I want to be my own God to I want to submit to God. And you see how all this connects. Submission, self-denial, this isn't ultimately about in relation to other people. So if you hear that, we're missing it. It's really about submitting to God. 
spiritual di- discipline of self-denial is just every time you feel convicted about a sin, submit to God. Repent. And that's just, just do it. Like, make this a habit. Every Tuesday, every time XYZ comes up, I'm going to submit to God. We should be doing this every day, but when you start doing this habitually, you start realizing who you are, how awesome God is. It's, it's a spiritual discipline. So how does it change you? It's like everything else. Uh, the more and more we deny ourselves, the more and more we realize how awesome God is. And remember, denying yourself is not, I don't want happiness. Denying yourself is, I want happiness, but I can't provide it. You know what I mean? Denying yourself is grabbing onto Jesus, kind of selfish in a way, because those who lose their lives will save it, and those who try to save their lives will lose it. So don't think this is some morbid way of being the negative Nancy. This is nothing like that. But knowledge of God and knowledge of self are correlated. What can we learn about ourselves here? Our dependence, our neediness, that we're going to be servants in heaven, not, you know, those who rule in hell, like Milton said. Oh, there you go. So become what you are, a servant. Submission, self-denial is a posture changer, like any other spiritual discipline, from what we want to be in Adam to what we really are in Jesus. It, it makes you the kind of person so that when, when you go to heaven, when, when the new heavens and new earth are restored now, uh, we're not going to be running to where we think King Jesus is going to be sitting on his throne and like jumping over you know, all the people in the meantime. We're going to be the ones going, oh, I bet Jesus is that scraggly-looking person right there. It teaches you that who God is and who I want to be should be closely related. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be a servant of all. Some examples of people that have done this well, it's an interesting example here. You wouldn't expect somebody in a theology book to go on a 68-page or so excursus explaining self-denial. But that's what Calvin does. It's something that he incorporated in every sermon. It's something he incorporated almost almost to the point of being off-topic even in his institutes because he thought this at the heart of being a Christian. And it's sort of the opposite of what we're taught as in the Western culture. But I really like to use the example, I know that's a really long name, His, you, you can shorten it to Count Zinzendorf, Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Um, he was a very interesting fellow who's um, built some of the foundation but w- where we came from, where our Protestant, uh, evangelical American Christianity uh, is influenced by the Moravians that were in his church that he sent out, and that they sent themselves out as missionaries. These Moravians met John Wesley on a boat trip to Georgia. Uh, Wesley was at least partially converted through the influence of these Moravians. He ended up at a Moravian church in London later, realized he wasn't a Christian, converted as he was, because they told him, you should start preaching, and then you'll see Jesus. And so he did, and he, uh, yeah, it's weird advice, isn't it, right? I don't believe in Jesus. What should I do? You should, like, pray. No, they're like, you should preach to us. <laughs> <laughs> well, it worked. 
And Wesley, of course, one of the one of the important organizers behind the Great Awakening and evangelical culture. And Count Zinzendorf is well known for a lot of things, ironically, because the line I remember him most for is the line, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Right? That is what it's all, it's ironic because we remember him. <laughs> so I find it funny too. Um, but preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. Whatever you do, whatever your occupation is, make that your life mission. Think about Zinzendorf. Well, funny story, by the way, when I didn't know war. I don't know, maybe I did know you well at the time, but we were at some um, restaurant and she wanted a Zinfandel, um, a wine that was a certain kind of, oh, sorry, a trigger warning. Uh, and, uh, and I was like, Zinfandel, what's that, whatever. So I walked over and I'm like, I didn't know what the word was, so I just said other words I'm familiar with, which is always obscure stuff. So, uh, waiter, I'll have a, I'll have a, I'll have a Zinzendorf. And they're like, whoa, was that like German or something? I'm like, yeah, yeah, actually, yeah. <laughs> and like, oh, well, yeah, well, we don't carry that. I'm like, well, I went back to war. I'm like, they don't have Zinzendorf. Do you remember this? I'm like, Zinfandel. I'm like, oh, what's that? <laughs> um, so there you go. He is truly remembered in all kinds of ways. I'm sure he meant, oh, to have that name. So preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. And I do want to hammer, hammer in the importance of this. And it's something that we sort of want to fight. I don't think we should do that, though. A lot of, like, read a, a lot of books on spiritual formation. They delete this discipline from it. I'm not going to start naming names, but many delete it, Protestants. Like, no, don't do that. And I can see why. You can probably see why. But uh, there's times in your life where remembering this and remembering, oh, man, this person's really obnoxious. They won't listen to anything I say. And remember, oh, my goodness, that's me to God. I'm just going to shut my mouth. I can't do anything about it right now and I'm going to deny myself. And that's where you're changed the most. Uh, it's, just do it. it, it, it it's uh, hard. Um, good old Zinzendorf. That's a great place to pause, by the way. We're right at 7.30. Uh, we made our way through uh, fasting and then self-denial and submission. Uh, there's a theme going on. We're not at the, like, happy-go-lucky spiritual disciplines yet, so I apologize if it feels really heavy and all that. I assure you it's just my tiredness. I use all my spunkiness from 8 to 5, and then I come in, and I'm like, oh, man, my spunkiness is gone. Uh, so <laughs> let's be spunky 